this is a like meteor coming towards you. This is going to radically transform society. And I think if people don't explore AI properly, it will leave them behind. I'd start with the thing your product does. What's the core premise behind it? Why do people use it? You know, what problem does it solve for them? That kind of thing. So go back to basics and then ask, can AI do that? And for a lot, it's the answer going to be yes, it can. For some, it might be, it can partially do it. And then maybe for others, it you know, it can't do that. At least not yet. And then for some of it, it'll be like kind of replacement. AI will replace, it'll just do it. And you know, in other places, it'll be augmentation. It'll augment, like it'll help people. But yeah, I think that you got to map your product and what AI can do and what it will be able to do. And then ask yourself, okay, what are we going to do? Today, my guest is Paul Adams. Paul is Chief Product Officer at Intercom, a role that he's held for over 10 years. Prior to this role, he was Global Head of Brand Design at Facebook, a user researcher at Google, a product designer at Dyson, and his first job was an automotive interior designer. In our conversation, Paul shares some amazing stories of failure, including the story of him giving a huge presentation where he froze on stage and had to walk off, and what he learned from these experiences of failure. We then get deep into how to think about AI as a part of your product strategy including a ton of great examples from Intercom's experience going all in on AI. Paul also shares some of his favorite frameworks and product lessons and so much more. This is the first recording I've ever done not from my home studio, instead from a hotel room. So this is a fun experiment for us all. With that, I bring you Paul Adams after a short word from our sponsors. This episode is brought to you by Epo. Epo is a next-generation A-B testing and feature management platform built by alums of Airbnb and Snowflake for modern growth teams. Companies like Twitch, Miro, ClickUp, and DraftKings rely on Epo to power their experiments. Experimentation is increasingly essential for driving growth and for understanding the performance of new features. And Epo helps you increase experimentation velocity while unlocking rigorous, deep analysis in a way that no other commercial tool does. When I was at Airbnb, one of the things that I loved most was our experimentation platform, where I could set up experiments easily, troubleshoot issues, and analyze performance all on my own. Epo does all that and more with advanced statistical methods that can help you shave weeks off experiment time, an accessible UI for diving deeper into performance, and out-of-the-box reporting that helps you avoid annoying, prolonged analytics cycles. Epo also makes it easy for you to share experiment insights with your team, sparking new ideas for the A-B testing flywheel. Epo powers experimentation across every use case, including product, growth, machine learning, monetization, and email marketing. Check out Epo at getepo.com slash Lenny and 10x your experiment velocity. That's getepo.com slash Lenny. This episode is brought to you by Hex. If you're a data person, you probably have to jump between different tools to run queries, build visualizations, write Python, and send around a lot of screenshots and CSV files. Hex brings everything together. Its powerful notebook UI lets you analyze data in SQL, Python, or no code in any combination and work together with live multiplayer and version control. And now, Hex's AI tools can generate queries and code, create visualizations, and even kickstart a whole analysis for you, all from natural language prompts. It's like having an analytics co-pilot built right into where you're already doing your work. Then, when you're ready to share, you can use Hex's drag-and-drop app builder to configure beautiful reports or dashboards that anyone can use. Join the hundreds of data teams like Notion, AllTrails, Loom, Mixpanel, and Algolia using Hex every day to make their work more impactful. 
Sign up today at hex.tech Lenny to get a 60-day free trial of the Hex team plan. That's hex.tech Lenny. Paul, thank you so much for being here and welcome to the podcast. Thanks, Annie. Nice to be here. It's nice to have you here. I've heard so many good things about you from so many different people. So I'm really happy that we're finally doing this. Also, you have an Irish accent, which is always a boost for ratings in my experience. So thank you for bringing that <laughs> with you here. Yeah, that's nice to hear. I wanted to start with a couple stories. So the first is your story of giving a keynote at Cannes. Can you share what happened there? Yeah, some, some things that happen in work are very memorable at the time. and They don't really scar you. Uh, this goes in the book that have scarred for life. Uh, <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, it's got a long story short. I was at Facebook just over a decade ago. Loved it at the time. Um, I think it was a great place to be at the time. And uh, based in San Francisco, I did a lot of talks for Facebook internally and externally. Um, Facebook had a keynote slot. I always have a keynote slot at Cannes, the world's biggest advertising festival. And um, the year prior, Zuck had been interviewed. He was the speaker. He'd been interviewed. He'd gotten a hard time on privacy. Uh, it didn't go well as well as they'd hoped. So the next year, they asked me to do it. Maybe it was the Irish accent, you know, that, that <laughs> made the offer come my way. And yeah, I got out, I got out in front of stage, you know, the world's uh, biggest advertising stage. And I'd say I was like three, four minutes into the talk, a talk I'd given, a very similar talk to one I'd given lots of times. And um, I just froze. I, I couldn't remember what I was supposed to say. Uh, it was the first ever time in my life I'd rehearsed a talk word for word. You know, usually like I have talking points and I ad lib and, you know, things get mixed around and it's kind of informal. This was like, you know, media trained, like don't do not say the wrong thing kind of talk. And I just could, could not remember what to say. I had some version of a panic attack, uh, walked off stage. I was still mic'd up, uh, cursed. Everyone started laughing. I was like, she's are they laughing at me. You know, oh my God, this is. Um, but I, I, I managed to turn around. I walked back out. I'd kind of been disarmed internally in my head and the rest of it went well, but it was, uh, and I was famous that night, you know, out in Cannes afterwards, like on the, on the, whatever the, the seafront, it's just like rosé everywhere. And, um, yeah, I was famous and infamous for my performance. I feel like you live the worst nightmare that everybody has when they're thinking about giving a talk. And I think what's interesting is you survived. And I think that's a really interesting lesson is like, you could freeze in front of thousands of people walk off stage and then it works out okay yeah and it all happened kind of uh organically i guess or very naturally you know but yeah I, ever since then every time i walk go out onto a conference talk stage still today i ask like ask myself i have this tiny doubt in the back of my head like it's never happened since but yeah you just i think you have to go with it with these things you know like when life kind of throws you these whatever curveballs you have got to kind of adapt and it's not that big a deal. None of these things are that big a deal at the end of the day. You know, you kind of move on, live and learn. So, yeah, but I still hope it doesn't happen again. I also hate public speaking and I always fear this is exactly what's going to happen to me. And so I think this is uh, nice to hear that even when the worst possible thing basically happens, things can survive. You can turn it around. Yeah. A second area I wanted to hear from is your time at Google. And there's a couple of products you worked on at Google. Both of them were not, not what you call big successes. And then there's a kind of a transition to Facebook, which was also kind of messy. Can you just share a couple of stories from that time? Yeah. Uh, similar to the, to the kind of like, you know, walking off stage thing. Um, you live and learn. And uh, I, I was at Google for four years and then I was at Facebook for kind of two and a half years or so. 
And in both of those companies, this is at the height of the social, you know, the kind of social tech wave was like at its peak. Google were very afraid of the existential threat posed by Facebook. Facebook were very confident they could pull off some kind of like new social advertising unit that would be like an AdWords or, or something like that that would like, you know, destroy Google's revenue, eat them from the inside out. And so being there at the time was fascinating and moving between the two companies. At Google, I worked on a lot of failed social projects, like you mentioned, Google Buzz, um, Google, then later Google Plus. I think a lot of the motivation for those projects came from a place of fear. You know, it didn't come from a place of let's make a great product for people. Let's like really understand the things people struggle with when communicating with family and friends. Like let's really, really try and create something wonderful. It came from a place of fear. And, uh, and so during those times, I kind of le- I learned, I think, how, how not to lead in places. And by the way, I should say, you know, at the time in Google, there was other things happening that were amazing. Like Google were building Google Maps, uh, incredible product, one of my favorite products, I think one of the best products ever made. They built, were building Android. You know, I was kind of in, I was in the mobile team, in the mobile apps team at the time that Android came out. So like, you know, incredibly good product. So I just happened to be in the social side, which wasn't as good. And uh, yeah, we, we um, Google Buzz was kind of a privacy disaster. And... Google Plus, similar. And so kind of halfway through, I, I kind of published research about groups and how I'd done, this, I'd done a ton of research. Got an interesting kind of side note there is at the time I was being asked, I was working in the research, in the UX team as a researcher, I was being asked to do a lot of tactical research, like usability study type stuff. Um, like, can people use these products? And I ended up doing um, a lot of formative research as well in the same session. So I'd, I'd kind of say to the team, like, hey, I'll do the research, I'll answer your questions, but also, I'm going to do this other thing. I'm going to take 20 minutes doing that. And so what we used to do is, um, what I used to do with people was map out their social network, all the people in it, their family, their friends, how they communicate. We'd map on all the channels. We'd talk about what worked well, what didn't. And ta- we did this with dozens and dozens of people over like the course of maybe 18 months. And the same pattern emerged every single time, which was people need way better ways to communicate with small groups of family and friends. And like, I, I kind of look back now and go like, what's up? You know, or like, it may be like iMessage if everyone's on Apple, but like really obvious in hindsight, but at the time, not obvious. And uh, uh, and so we kind of tried to build a product around that called Google Plus. But um, again, it was kind of motivated from the wrong, came from the wrong place. And so halfway through the research that I'd, that I'd kind of done, all this research had been made public through a conference talk and Zook uh, and Facebook noticed, got in touch. One thing led to another and I left and joined Facebook which was an amazing thing for me personally. I, I, Facebook was amazing, an amazing place at the time and exciting. And, and they were trying to do things for the other reasons, the, the kind of good reasons. Like, hey, let's build an amazing product for people. And this was during Google Plus being built. You basically shifted. Yeah, midway. It hadn't, <laughs> I'm stressed <laughs> to even tell you that. The project hadn't been launched. It was still under wraps. You know, um, it was highly confidential. Google had done a lot of things at the time that, that, that were the first for them. I don't know if they've done them since, but things like, Everyone worked in Google Plus was sent to a different building. That building had a different, had a different key card. If you didn't work in Google Plus, you could not get in. All sorts of like kind of uh, countercultural things at the time. And as a result, there was a lot of you know antagonism internally for Google Plus. And so when I left in the middle of the project, kind of leaving with all of the plans in my head to the enemy, you know, some people saw me as a traitor, understandably. Uh, other people thought I was enlightened, you know, to fancy to talk to, but it was, um, I was a, like, it was the right thing for me to do. But at the time, you know, it was, um, it was a hard thing to do. 
I know there's also like a lot of scrutiny in what you took with you and the process. Uh, yeah, when I left, uh, Google kind of assumed that I was one of the spies. You know, I was quarantined when I told them I was leaving. Uh, they, uh, you know, forensically analyzed my laptop, like all sorts of stuff like that. So it was pretty intense. Um, you know, looking back, I, I can understand why that happened. But the root cause for me is that the project has been run from a place of fear, competitive fear, which I don't think leads to good things. So one of the themes through the stories you just shared is, let's say failure is, is <laughs> I don't want to make it that harsh, but just things not working out. And I'm curious as a product leader, how important you think that is for people to go through if you think that's something that is almost a good thing. And I guess just, is there anything there that you find helpful as a, as a coach, as a mentor, as someone, two people that are trying to become basically you? Very, very. Uh, still is, it still is, you know, like, um, I've personally failed so many times, uh, you know, like there are two stories and the Google one is like long, deep, deep tentacles. Like there are two, there are two stories. I, I, I failed a, a ton of times. Like at Intercom, I remember like, you know, when I was at Facebook, I was very happy and, um, Owen and I knew Owen and Des, two of the co-founders of Intercom and, uh, they're trying to persuade me to join Intercom. We were like, it was like 10 person company at the time, but Owen said something, something to me at that time, which, uh, has stuck with me ever since. He said, you know, at, at Facebook, you can, you can design the product. But at Intercom, you can design the company. And that was extremely appealing to me, like a great pitch. Uh, he's like, just design the company with us that you want to work in. And so, the, and so part of that was a company that embraces failure, that says it's okay to try things. I'm a big believer in like big bets, you know, high risk, high reward. Uh, I, I, I don't get as excited about incremental things. Now, having said that, there's of course a place for that too, especially as companies get bigger. But I, I, I get excited about like big, big bets. And if you make big bets, you're going to get the, a lot of it wrong. So a lot of the principles that we built here at Intercom around building software, like we have a principle called ship to learn. And, uh, our sh and we've actually changed it since. It's over on the wall here. Uh, ship fast, ship early, ship often is what it says now. You say ship to learn. Ship fast, ship early, ship often. It's like in that idea is the idea of failure. You know, you're going to, it's not going to go right. And uh, it's going to go wrong more often than not. But if you ship early and fast and learn fast, you can change fast and you can improve fast. And that's kind of how we, that's the kind of culture that, that we, as much as possible, try to embrace uh, and teach people. But it's much easier said than done. <laughs> yeah. Especially when you're in the moment, like, God damn it, everything's going to fall apart. I really, I really messed this one up. Yeah. And there's a trade-off with, with, with quality that people really struggle with. Like, you know, we, we have high standards of ourselves. A lot of Intercom comes from a kind of design founder background. We, we value the craft a lot. We never want to be embarrassed by what we ship. So there's a real tension there, a real trade-off uh, where people have these high standards, which we encourage, and we encourage them to ship fast and learn and make mistakes. Uh, it's a constant kind of tension that we're navigating. Speaking of taking big bets and going all in, I know there's been a huge shift at Intercom to move towards AI and embrace AI. And so maybe just to start broadly, I'm curious, just what are some of your broader insights or surprises so far in how you've thought about AI and how you think AI will integrate into product and product strategy? Well, a hot day to ChatGPT launched November 29th, I think last year. Ever since that day, I, I literally wake up every day thinking about AI pretty much. And I read as much as possible and still feel like I'm way behind in it. I think for me, like when I talk to you about AI, people typically fall into one of two camps. 
you're either like all in, like really, truly all in. This is a like meteor coming towards you. Like this is, you know, bigger than mobile as a kind of technology shift, as big as the internet. Maybe it's bigger than the internet itself as a kind of social, you know, technology shift, the way it'll shape, shape society. So like I'm all in, uh, I'm like, I've gone over the hill or whatever. <laughs> I'm over the other side. Uh, and so there's people in that camp. And then I think there's people in, in another camp, which is, I've heard this before, it's hype. Like, you know, last year was crypto, you know, it was Web3, like none of those things worked out. There was the metaverse, you know. So there's definitely, I think, a lot of skepticism or maybe cynicism around it. And I can understand why, you know, the other things didn't really pan out. No, the metaverse is kind of really has one that might be coming back. But, and I kind of think about, um, I'm trying to remember, there's a law, the law where you have like, you know, the hype and then the trough of disillusionment and then mm-hmm. you kind of come out the other side. Yeah, a little, yeah, a little curve chart. Yeah, and, and I think that's where a lot of people might be, where like the hype, there was so much hype. It was so noisy and still is a little bit so noisy that you kind of tune it out a little bit. Um, and, and some people have kind of fallen into that camp. I'm all in on the, in the, other, in the other camp. Like this is going to radically transform society and it, it kind of like blows my mind even seeing new types of things that come out, like ChatGPT Vision just came out recently, and like just seeing the things that people can do with it, and we're like just scratching the surface still. So I'm, we're all in for sure. Awesome. I want to unpack that, but I think there's also this camp of people that like, yes, something big is happening. I just don't have the time to understand, to build, to play around. What have you found, and or what advice would you share to people that are just like, I want to go deeper down this rabbit hole? I just don't know where to start because I have so much work to do already. And this isn't like a side thing. The advice I have for people and the advice I have for myself, you know, I'm in that too. Like I wake up every day to too many emails and Slack chats and, you know, people knocking on my door and my desk and all kinds of things. So like, uh, this is a challenge for me too. You just have to take the time. Like there's just no other way for me. And that, that to me doesn't mean, you know, it's about priorities. You know, it doesn't mean that you like need to work, you know, crazy hours. I don't believe in working crazy hours. You know, I don't know what, what hours I work. I don't know, 50 hours a week, maybe. I think beyond that, you start to make bad decisions and things like that. You get tired. And you need to live the rest of your life. Uh, like, you got to put it into your day, you know, whether that's like setting aside dedicated time to read. I, reading is, is the thing. You got to read. You got to stay up to date and you got to play with things and try things. If you don't have ChatGPT, if you don't have like a kind of, a, I can't remember if it's a pro license or whatever, like, but if you haven't upgraded to get access to things like GPT, for vision uh, where it can you can take photos and you have the mobile app and the guys out for dinner last friday night with my wife i try not to take work to dinner you know with my wife but i wanted to try it and i took some photos of her food and like you know it can do all sorts of crazy stuff like tell you how healthy the meal is or, or whatever oh, wow. anyway if you don't, you got to try it you just got to try it so like my advice to people is you've got to try it. you've got to set aside the time or it will pass you by it does remind me of the mobile the kind of mobile wave about a decade ago. Again, I was at Google at the time. I was working in the mobile team, so I guess it was my job to stay on top of things. But at that time, you know, some companies like Facebook went all in on it, maybe a bit late, but they eventually made the brave decision. And I think if people don't explore AI properly, it, it will leave them behind. It reminds me, I think at Facebook, Zuck, and also at Airbnb, Brian did this, is he said, any mocks you show me, for new product designs have to be on a, in a mobile app or on a yeah. mobile web. They can't they can no longer be desktop for now. 
Right. Yeah, I meant that same with Facebook. Yeah, I think that's right. I guess, do you think that that's a way to approach this is as a leader, just everything you bring me needs to have some AI component. That sounds probably not like a good idea, but is there something there you're thinking about or have done of just like convincing people this is where you want to spend your time? Yeah, it's harder for sure. It's harder because- You want to force it. Yeah, a lot of the tech is invisible. You know, like a lot of the things, like we, we have a machine learning team. We've had one here for a long time. So we've been working in the space for quite, a, quite some time. But it's funny, even if you go back like 18 months, I think if I was on, 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 the, on your podcast 18 months ago and you said to me like, hey, what do you think about AI? I would have said something like, it's not real. Machine learning is real. Let's talk about that. You, you know, so, so things change and, and my perception of it's changed. But a lot of the, a lot of the improvements are kind of like behind the scenes. You know, there were like large language models or like different types of things people are building in the background of like infrastructure. So I don't know what it looks like to, you know, design mobile mockups that are like AI mockups. But I do think that like people need to need to start really thinking strategically. Like I, I don't think maybe it's just not at mockup stage, but start to think really strategically about their product and whether it's in the line of the meteor that's coming or not. You know, it's not everything is. And if so, for some, I think they require a kind of a foundational strategic change. Others, it might be less so, but, but I think that's actually the headspace that I think people need to be in. Can you unpack that further? What, do you, what, do, what does that look like to uh, really think deeply about whether your, your product is in the way of the meteor? You can get sidetracked by the, by the technology for sure. And I, I do. I just mentioned, like, hey, going out for dinner and taking a photo of my food. You, know? you can get sidetracked by the tech. And some of it's really cool. I wouldn't start there. I'd start with uh, the thing your product does. Like, what's the core premise behind it? Why do people use it? You know, what problem does it solve for them? That kind of thing. And then ask the question. So go back to basics. Okay, what is my product for? And why do people love it? And then, and then ask, can AI do that? And for a lot, it's, the answer is going to be yes, it can. For some, it might be it can partially do it. And then maybe for others, it, you know, it can't do that, at least not yet. And the types of things, you know, so you're going to need to map like, what your product does against what AI can do. And like, AI can do a lot. Like, uh, it can write. Uh, I'll try, I'll give, give you like a list. It can write, it can summarize, uh, it can summarize text, it can write text, it can answer queries, it can find facts, it can scan text, it can scan images, it can listen to your voice and repeat it, it can take actions. That's like the next big thing coming. It can take actions, actually do things. It could like, hey, I mean, hey, AI, whatever, whatever the AI is called. <laughs> yeah, change my flight. Change my flight to Tuesday, right? It can do things like that. And so it can do a lot of things. It can, it can think, it can build rules. It can, you know, so any, I think any product that has any kind of workflow in it, which is, is almost all B2B SaaS products, any product that has multimedia in it, they're in the fire, they're in the meteor line or whatever. I don't know if this metaphor is working, but like, yeah, the meteor is coming and they're like in its path. And so for a lot of these products that you just need to look at what AI can do. And then for some of it, it'll be like kind of replacement. AI will replace, it'll just do it. And then, you know, in other places, it'll be augmentation. It'll augment, it'll help people, um, like the co-pilot ideas that are going around. But yeah, I think that you got to map your product and what AI can do and what it will be able to do. And then ask yourself, okay, what are we going to do? Is there an example of that at Intercom or a different company of, here's a problem we're trying to solve. Oh, AI can actually do this fully for us. Oh, yeah. I like... Inter- I'll give you Intercom first. Like, again, I, you know, this date's kind of, uh, uh, I think it was never the 29th. It, like, 
etched in our head. You know, we, we have like Fergal, who, who's our head of machine learning. And Fergal just turns around that day and he's like, okay, I think he tweeted something actually. Uh, he had a tweet that day that was like, this is it. This is, the mo- this is the time. This is the moment. This is the before after. You know, like I, I actually often talk about people. There's a little framework I have, like before after moments. This is a before after moment. It was before and that is after and like everything has changed. So we literally ripped up our strategy almost entirely and started again, like from first principles and said, okay, why do people use Intercom? You know, our, Intercom is a customer support, a customer support product. And then very soon after that, Sam Altman, who's the you know, founder of uh, head of OpenAI said, hey, one of the first industries that's going to be disrupted is customer service. We're like, yep. So we, we did. We totally changed how we think, how we work. And we just went kind of heads down and built a product called Finn. We built other things first. Actually, Finn came later, now that I think about it. But we just went, we kind of went all in on it. It was a little bit of a bet the farm kind of mindset. So we've done it. Uh, I think other companies like Google with Bard have to do it. You know, and maybe they were a little bit slow, but it's so early in this tech cycle that I think they're they're fine. Um, so you know, it, it, yeah, we we you just have to. We did. It was hard, but we had to do it. Can you share briefly what Finn is, just for folks that aren't familiar? Finn is uh, first and foremost is an AI chatbot. So if you think about customer service, you know, people have questions uh, for a business, and historically that was mostly email and phone. And mostly ticketing based. So you'd file a ticket, you know, a lot of do not reply email and, and kind of so on. And then came along conversational customer support, which is just basic messaging, like like WhatsApp or iMessage, like I mentioned earlier. Now there's like, you know, bot first experiences and Finn is an AI chatbot. Uh, AI first, chat bot first. So the first line of defense for a customer support team is Finn, not a person. And so it fundamentally changes. And Finn can do, or the results we've seen with Finn are like mind blown. Our biggest challenge is actually trying to help customer support teams think about organizational change. You know, it's not like the tech is like way ahead. It's actually like people wrapping their heads around what this means for the role, the teams, loads of cool stuff, you know, like new types of jobs for people, like conversation designers, a job we have where you design the conversations that Finn does uh, or manages. So anyway, that's what Finn is. Finn has expanded. So Finn is now also in our Intercom inbox, the place that people answer queries, customer support queries. And now Finn's in there too, helping the support reps, like suggesting answers for them to use or h- helping them like rephrase things. Or So it's, it's now augmenting people as well as answering questions by itself. I think you're one of the few companies that has pivoted fully into AI. And I think there's a lot of lessons here about how team structures might change, product strategy, priorities, things like that. So I'm curious just to unpack a couple more things here. First of all, what kind of impact have you seen after going all in and going in this direction? Uh, it's very early, honestly, to be able to answer that properly. And it depends what you measure as, as success. So um, again, there's a lot of hype and buzz with AI. So if you're measuring it by like um, interest, that's it's a huge success. You know, A lot of people, like our, our target customer is customer support, our customer support manager, leader. And so they're like, very curious. They're like, does it actually work? There's a little bit, again, back to the earlier thing of like, there's so much hype, there's a bit of skepticism around it. Does it actually work? Is it as good as a person? Hey, and and, you know, like in in customer support, people who tend to work in that role are typically very high empathy, care a lot about people. And so they're like, but is it as good as a person? 
Like, is it nice, friendly? Like, does it understand humanity, you know? Uh, and so there's a lot of curiosity and a lot of interest and a lot of people trying it. We have some customers who are hugely successful with it. They can answer up to 50, 60, 70% of their inbound questions with Finn. So like we have some customers who see huge success, but it's early, you know? And so like, has it transformed our business? Like financially, not yet. You know, it's not like this kind of, you know, all, all, I think all fast growing startups, you know, if you think of intercom as, or like AI intercom as, I guess, a new startup, even though we're 900 people, you know, the kind of growth curve, you're looking for this kind of exponential curve, as opposed to like big public company kind of linear growth curve. With the exponential one, it takes a while. You know, the first kind of year, two years is the like bottom of that. And so I think we're still, we're still in, in the like trying to figure out exactly what's going on, trying to, trying to talk to people, educate people. But, you know, we, we have enough evidence to believe it's the future for sure. Are there any examples of either this product or other instances of AI just kind of blowing your mind where you're just like, wow, I never imagined it would be this good? I, got, I kind of go back to that like before after thing. So ChatGPT, the first version of ChatGPT was a before after where we, we had built, like we've been working, like I said, in this space. We've had a machine learning team for a long time. The way our machine learning thing worked before ChatGPT was, you have a, there's all a manual setup, like a, a you know, customer support manager would have to like orchestrate the bot and like teach it what to say. And like, you know, um, just a lot of orchestration, a lot of teaching it. And then ChatGPT showed up and it's like, oh, it can do it by itself. Like it gets it wrong sometimes, but so do people. People get the question wrong too. You know, it's kind of as good as a person nearly for a lot of these basic things. So that blew my mind. And then that was like, just, oh, it can answer questions. But then you're like, it can reason. Oh, and there's actually like a debate about whether it's, is this reasoning or deduction or, but, you know, but it, it can like work things out. And I'm not one for going down into these like really f- philosophical things. Like I'm like, we just need to get, build a, let's go back building the product or whatever. But it can work things out. And that blew my mind. And like we fed it a whole bunch of stuff. We fed ChatGPT um, and other companies too. Like we played with, you know, other LLMs like Entropic and so on. It can work things out. And that was like kind of mind blowing. Then you can see it doing things like writing code. And I was like, wow, it's really good at writing code. What does that mean? You kind of, and then you start thinking, like here at Intercom, we have a, a kind of a one to five ratio. So like a PM ha- has about five engineers on a team. And you're looking at this thing writing code and you're like, what happens next? You know, like, do we need as many engineers or will their role change? And they'll start doing different types of things like reviewing code instead of writing code. So that kind of blew my mind. And then the, the visual stuff, like I mentioned earlier, I think the visual thing was bigger than the original one. Like it can parse imagery and like, you know, it can help you see the world. You take a photo of your bike and say, hey, what's wrong? And I'll tell you what's wrong, how to fix it. You can be traveling, take photos of stuff. It's in a different language. It's like etched in stone on a like 12th century cathedral. You're like, what does that say? And it'll tell you what it says. Like, it's just like, I, I don't know, how does it do, how to do that? You know, this is one I, I'm actually repeating most people these days. Um, here in Ireland, if you want to be a radiologist, you know, so like study x-rays and, uh, and tell people what's wrong and so on and so forth. It's seven years training to like learn that, learn that skill. So seven years to be a radiologist. And then you're just kind of just into the job. AI, it, it seems, is already better at it. So it, uh, it's already better at it, and it can ingest every X-ray ever made. Like no human can ever read and think about and synthesize every X-ray ever made. So of course it's better. And then you're like, 
okay, what happens now? I guess the whole job changes. You know, radiologists will not take x-ray. Well, I guess it might take them, but they won't analyze them for sure. They'll look at what AI says, check that it's right. And then it's like kind of bedside manner time, like, you know, tell the patient, maybe tell them what kind of course. So like the job just fundamentally changes. And by the way, that could be amazing. We have, here in Ireland, we have like long queues for hospitals, epic waiting lists for, for people getting x-rays. So like, this is a really good thing possibly for people. Here's the craziest one I have. Um, AI can, can listen to your voice and copy it. So it can say things and it sounds exactly like you and it's really, really good, like almost indistinguishable. We are like, that, that sounds like Paul. And so I mentioned that the metaverse earlier. I don't know if you saw Zuck talks mm-hmm. to Lex Friedman. Mm-hmm. See that? Yep. So that was my first like, oh, like, so it's the, me- you know, for people who haven't seen it, they met in the metaverse, I think, or some virtual world. Yeah, it was like a black, look- black room. In a black room, yeah. And the tech has come on so they can analyze your face and you know, build a 3D model. It's really good, like really, really close. So that, you can imagine that's going to get better. Based on the trajectory of that technology, it's going to get better. And so the voice thing and the face thing means both of those things are almost indistinguishable from a real person. And AI will be able to ingest all the things people say and do. And when people die, it'll be able to replicate that person. You know, and so like, there's an afterlife. You, you, hey, you know, like your your parent dies, and you're you can still talk to them. And like, that could be the weirdest thing. Maybe it's not good for people. I don't know. But that tech is like just around the corner, you know. And the AI can like, it's kind of like, my, you know, question is mind blowing. It's mind blowing. There's actually a Black Mirror episode with that same premise where that's uh, right. Yeah, and I don't think it ended well. So no, <laughs> yeah, I like be careful. For sure, for sure. Yeah, I, it is like the I think Minority Report and like mm-hmm. um, the voice translation thing is another one. I can't remember. Maybe it's in Mission Impossible, where it can take a voice, translate it, and translate it in real time. So, you know, and this tech is like again just here, where like if I was a native Spanish speaker and couldn't speak English, you and I could still have this podcast. Mm. You know, it's been your your voice would be translated in Spanish in real time for me. It's like again mind blowing. We're actually working on dubbing slash translating podcast episodes which is all done through ai where it figures out what you're saying oh, wow. makes it in spanish and then also changes your lips to match and we're trying to launch a couple of those and that's actually wow. very ai based yeah that's cool. Um, that's cool you mentioned that your eng team might change you're thinking like because ai can make them much more efficient and work differently i'm curious what you've seen actually change on your team either using ai-ish tools or just building ai products what do you think is most different and I'm curious, from the perspective of a team that's trying to think about integrating AI and starting to lean into AI, what have you seen most change and, and should change? Ultimately, you need like really great machine learning engineers. Like that's where, that's where it starts. And if you don't have that, then um, you know, you're going to find it hard to build truly, really, truly great things. You know, so like uh, what OpenAI provide um, and what Anthropic provide and you know, Claude is another one. Like, they, they provide like amazing, an amazing technology, but you got to build on top of it. If you really want something brilliant, you got to build on top of it. So like we adapted what they build for customer support. Um, maybe someday we'll need to go build our own LLM that's just for customer support. Maybe, I don't know where that will all go. Um, and maybe everyone will have their own LLM for every single business. I, I don't really know, to be honest. Maybe these companies will provide specialized LLMs. But anyway, that's like kind of the first thing. And of course, these people are in high demand. So 
Uh, so you need to like invest in building out that function, I think. Really invest in building out the function. So that's what we've been doing. Uh, the, you know, our, our kind of like ML team's way bigger than it uh, was and way bigger than it ever has been at Intercom. And then kind of it, it forks. So some projects are very heavy on that ML team and, and it needs them. But other projects are more front end. Like the inbox stuff I mentioned earlier where you know, we have Finn and Finn is kind of working. We've built the underlying technology. Now it's a question of like, you know, if you have a human support person answering questions in the inbox, that's like a natural chat kind of conversational interface, pretty straightforward. What happens when there's now like an AI assistant in there? How do they talk and what do they do and when do they interject and how do you represent that in the user experience that feels natural? So that's a really hard design problem. So that's then you're kind of back into like, okay, we have a product team that's like a product manager, a product designer, you know, maybe three, four, maybe five engineers, and they're, they're getting help from the machine learning team. So like we, we've, we now have both, set, both setups and increasingly we can do more with the latter, you know, more teams who can build on the foundational technology that we've been building over the last kind of 12 months or so. So that's kind of one thing. Uh, I think a second thing that comes to mind is um, not to think about it as bolted on. You know, I think some people are still in that camp. Um, like, again, I'll go back to the mobile thing. It's just, it's, it's just so, much, so, so many direct parallels with it. Like I said earlier, at Google, I worked in the mobile apps team. I worked on mobile Gmail, mobile docs. And it was like the mobile team. And we were in London. We're like, hey, we're the mobile team in London. And meanwhile, over in Mountain View in California, no one cared. You know, <laughs> it's like, it was like, you're 20 people, we're 200. No one uses this stuff on a phone. No one, and again, a lot of skepticism. No one's going to write docs on a phone. Seriously, they're going to write a document. They're going to write a full document on a phone. Are you crazy? You know, so, um, so don't do that. You know, we're, we're trying not to do that. Like, don't bolt it on. Don't be like, oh, we'll have a bunch of AI people. And we do have some specialists. But generally speaking, we're trying to like have everyone learn about it. Interesting. So I'm curious just specifically what that looks like. Don't bolt it on. The idea there is don't just have like a side team that's like they're the AI team. They're going to add AI to all this stuff. You're finding and less lesson is integrated into every product team. Yeah, and we're still early there. You know, we're still early. So like um, what we're trying not to do is have like the, the kind of like AI inbox team. who oh, And they're the only people who work on AI features in the inbox. I think it's much better to have everyone learn about it. I, by the way, I'm a big believer in, in generalists, like a big, big believer in like, um, I mean, I guess my background is like, you know, jack of all trades, master of none. That's <laughs> probably how I describe myself. Uh, like I've worked as a researcher, designer, PM. Um, and so I believe in generalists. And so I believe in setting teams up that way. And yes, specialism matters at times. Like machine learning for sure is a deep specialism. And at Intercom, we generally much in engineering too. Uh, much prefer people who learn new things, whether it's like a new la- new coding language or framework, or you know how to design AI interfaces or whatever. Get more people being able to do it. I feel like again, your company is a little bit of living in the future, where a lot of companies are gonna get to once they realize, oh shit, we really need to get big here, or they're already working on it. I'm curious if there's other maybe pitfalls you ran into that you think people should try to avoid and something you could share there, or just like any other lessons about making this transition that you think might be useful to other people? Yeah, what I've mentioned so far, don't, yeah, don't bolt it on. Um, don't keep, like, stay up to date. You know, like re- I mentioned earlier, like read, read. Like, I feel like I'm behind all the time. This, it's moving so fast. What are you reading? What do you find is most interesting and informative for 
reading about what's happening in AI? I'd love to tell you that it's incredibly structured. And, you know, I have a great reading list that I read. I got dinner every Sunday morning. <laughs> it's, uh, it's pretty random. I'm on Twitter, which is now called Xcourse, uh, a lot. I follow some people on Twitter. Um, I actually use the recommended feed in Twitter a lot. I think because I interact and look at a lot of AI, get to see a lot more. So I do that and I kind of do it deliberately to ge- try and generate more stuff. I'll search Twitter as well. I guess those are cool stuff there. There's some newsletters as well and some people I follow. Any um, newsletters you could call out that you think were our most yeah, interesting? Matt Rickard is one guy um, who, who talks a lot about AI. The blogs of companies too, like, you know, OpenAI have a pretty good blog um, and they write papers and summarize them. Cool. If there's any other ones you think of, either people on Twitter to follow or newsletters, email me after and then we'll add them to the show notes. Yeah, perfect. Yeah, yeah, there, there definitely is. I'll dig them out. Your question earlier, how do you do? You just try, try book out half an hour and just go deep for half an hour and then bookmark a few things, come back to them. It, it, like like everyone, like you, know, you could be so busy, so many distractions, you just got to have to set aside time. Are there any other tools or apps that you find really helpful? Sounds like ChatGPT is kind of at the center of how you play around with it. Is there anything else that you find really interesting? I'll try other things like Bard. You know, for example, like Google. Bard is Google's kind of AI search engine. Uh, Rewind is another like fascinating company. Rewind, I think it's Rewind.ai. Um, Rewind is basically augmented AI for your memory. So you install it on your hard on your like local machine, and it captures everything and remembers everything. And it's all local, so there's no privacy issues. And uh, you got to try these things to understand whether it's any good or useful or where's the boundaries and how's it work and um, and so on. So I'm a believer in, in, in that type of thing. This episode is brought to you by HelpBar by Chameleon, the free in-app universal search solution built for SaaS. Your help content lives outside your app and is scattered in many places, forcing users to waste time hunting for answers. HelpBar solves this. It delivers answers directly inside your app and eliminates context switching. Users can search or ask questions to get AI-generated answers and lists of the most relevant documentation from all of your help sources, including your knowledge base, docs, blog, and video libraries. You can also use HelpBar to navigate your app and launch actions, such as scheduling a meeting or viewing an interactive demo. The best products today use Command-K for in-app search and navigation. HelpBar makes that readily available within your app without engineering or new code. Give users a faster and more delightful self-serve experience that reduces friction and increases in-app engagement. Upgrade your user experience with this modern component and supercharge your product-led motion. Sign up for HelpBar today. It's free and easy to set up in minutes. Check it out at helpbar.ai slash Lenny. That's helpbar.ai slash Lenny. When you started rolling out AI and kind of leaning into this direction, did you run into any big challenges or hurdles organizationally or personal uh, interests or opinions? I don't know. Was there anything you ran into that was a big stumbling block and something you had to get over? Yeah, like any company, Intercom is full of diverse opinions about things, you know, and I think with AI... You know, I'm like, I'm all in. I'm not talking about, I'm all in. Like, I'm leaning forward. The media is coming. Like, I'm sold. You know, I'm way past that point. Also, no one knows. Like, no one knows. And so, a lot of the time when we talk internally, like, the strong buy-in from, you know, Owen, you know, co-founder and CEO, Des, you know, co-founder, like me, like, a lot of the senior leadership team are, like, we're in the all-in camp. And so, that helps a lot. Of course, if your senior leadership team in the company are, like, all-in, of course, then it kind of trickles down. 
But equally, like, you know, people sometimes ask some of the kind of hurdles of being like, are you know, are you, why are you all in? And I'm like, uh, an educated guess, a, ho- a hunch, you, you know, a lot of it's, a lot of it's like the, the kind of the, the, the part of like business strategy and product strategy that you just, it's just hard. It's just kind of, it's like taste. You know, people talk about taste, like product taste, who has product taste. And a lot of it is like, it's, it's judgment based on experience. That's all I can say. Like, I, I don't know. For me personally, I don't know. I lived through the mobile thing pretty closely. Haven't worked at Google on mobile. I, li- I lived through that phase. So I can see the same type of thing happening now, but bigger. So I'm kind of like using that experience to like go all in. But it's a challenge for people, some people, because they don't have that context or they disagree with it. You know, we have a lot of debate here about the future. You know, Fergal, who I mentioned earlier, gave myself and a few other people, uh, a few other product leaders, and Daz, he gave us like a, I don't know, was it a pitch or what? A plea? I don't know. About how maybe all of our roadmap with AI is wrong. Maybe we're like kind of, I don't know if you, I don't know if you think are, are familiar with the Horizons framework, like Horizon 1, 2, and 3. Mm-hmm. Yeah, know, like Amazon. The, yeah. yeah. So, so like Horizon 1 is kind of the medium, short to medium term, like next 12 months, 12 to 18 months. Horizon 2 being like, hey, what's happening? Whatever, 18 to 36 months out or I think people use different time frames, different horizons. Anyway, we're like in Horizon One land. We're like, yeah, and then next year we're going to do this. And he's like, yeah, but two years from now, if this path, you know, plays out, everything we're doing now is like going to be irrelevant and, and like useless. And you're like, okay, you know. And so, and so, like those discussions happen, and uh, and it, the the level of ambiguity is off the charts. So. A lot of the challenges have been navigating that ambiguity and helping people get the conviction I have, you know, without kind of drowning out voices of like um, alternative voices and opinions, which, which are often valid too. What has helped people get that conviction? Is it just showing them examples of here something? Wow, look at this thing. This is unreal. And I think part of partly what helps, I imagine, is the market you're in seems like such a clear opportunity for AI. It feels like an easier pitch than maybe a lot of other markets. Yeah, that's true, for sure. That's true. Yeah, I, t- showing people is definitely like the easiest way. I, I think, yes, the customer support is definitely that, I, I, you know, like I said, Sam Altman's like, number one, customer support. <laughs> uh, so you're like, okay, <laughs> I guess we should <laughs> adapt. Adapt, yeah, we, adapt or die is kind of our mantra, adapt or die. Mm. I think that there are other industries where they're on the same journey. It's just not as obvious. So for example, reporting software, you know, Tableau or, you know, any kind of reporting product, you know, how do they work? Well, they're like the typical kind of like, you know, read, write app build dashboards, filtering, querying, you know, kind of hardcore querying, kind of query a database, get some numbers, show it in a UI. A lot of thought and care goes into like how you present that data to people, the different types of charts that are appropriate, um, help people make good decisions ultimately. I, I think, again, this is like hand wavy, who knows? Maybe that's all done, dead now. And the reporting product of the future is just a box. And the box just goes to the database and the box is just, um, who was our best sales month last year? January. Okay. Uh, who was our top performing rep in January? You know, Lenny. Like, the reporting products of the future might look like that. And so project management tools is another one. There's a bunch of products that I think are just outside the most obvious customer support one. And, and yet, equally, 
ripe for a newcomer to come with a completely different paradigm and potentially take over. I like that this connects back to your very first point about trying to think about where AI integrates is think about what problem are you solving as a company? For example, Tableau, helping people visualize data. And then the question is, can AI just do this for you? And in that case, oh, maybe you can. And that gives you basically a whole strategy of like, okay, how do we actually do that with AI? Yeah. And it's very hard to, you know, if you're, I don't know if the reporting thing will play out that way, but, you know, if you're like a, a Tableau type company, you have tons of designers who design dashboards and filters and querying type like workflow. Like what do they do? The UI is the box, mm. you, you know? So it's really hard to, it, it's really hard to get into your head like, we must, if you believe, if you have conviction that we must change, really hard. Maybe one last question here for team members learning and starting to work within this realm. Is there anything you find helpful to get them ramped up other than the advice you've already shared, which is just read a lot of stuff, watch Twitter slash X, subscribe to these newsletters, and then just try it? I also try and read things that say like it's all a load of crap, you know, mm. so like it, it's very easy I've been guilty of this many times. Back to the like, mistakes you've made. Like I've been guilty of this many times where like I've jumped on a bandwagon and uh, it was all wrong. And like the, the older I get, like the Web3 thing, I'm like, I don't even know what Web3 is. Crypto, I never, I never bought crypto. Maybe I'm wrong about that. But I'm not a bandwagon jumper, you know? And I, but I kind of maybe might have been when I was earlier. So like, and I try these days to read the alternative opinion. Um people who are skeptical or, or or think it's bad. You know, a lot of people think this is terrible for humanity. This technology is going to eat us alive, you know? So I try and, I try and like balance my optimism. I, I'm kind of a delusionally optimistic thinker. So I try and balance that with a negativity, I guess. That's really you good know? advice. Yeah. Is there anything else in this realm that you think might be useful to share before we shift to a different topic? Oh, yeah. The other thing is, is don't be afraid. Uh, maybe. Um, I think people are a bit afraid of it. And like, for example, if I started walking around our office here saying, hey, I think we're going to need two engineers per team going forward. That's probably not really a good idea to do that. You know, and I think in reality, that's not going to be how it plays out. Like there's all sorts of like, you know, loads of great studies over the years about how people don't end up losing jobs. Um, the jobs get moved around. And also, you know, for customer support, for example, it's a high attrition job. So people saying like, hey, everyone's going to lose their job. A bot's going to take over. It's like, maybe some of that will happen, but probably to attrition. As in like people, someone quit and just didn't get backfilled. So, you know, the, the doomsday scenarios, I don't think will play out as much. But for sure, like, you know, it's easy to kind of be afraid of it. Um, and I think you kind of have to lean into it. I love that. Okay. I want to chat about frameworks. You have a lot of interesting frameworks that you've put out there. So maybe we do kind of a rapid fire through a number of frameworks that you've worked with and find useful. And the first act, you actually mentioned this before and after, which I hadn't heard about. Is What's what's the general idea to that concept? Before, after it, it, it is, is literally that simple, I think. Like we have a rebrand at the moment happening. And that will be a before, after moment, you know? We're redesigning our pricing. And then the day that pricing goes live, that'll be a before after. Because it was like, not, you know, nothing's the same. And so we need to go back out and talk to people again. Like I'm a big believer in talking. You got to talk to customers. It's the only way. 
you got to talk, 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 learn, learn, learn. Don't take what they say face value, go deeper. And so, you know, a lot of these before after moments, once the, once you've passed the uh, into the after, you got to start learning. Were we right? Were we wrong? What happened? What do people think? You know, can you talk more about this pricing learning slash mistake you shared? What do you think you did wrong? What happened there? You know, we had a principle called um, align price to value. By the way, I, I, I like. I think pricing is incredibly difficult. Uh, a lot of the a lot of the design team who work on pricing here, you know, I say to them like it's one of the hardest design problems I know. Like, I think onboarding is another one. Onboarding people into a product is also like people are like, oh hey, you just design a few steps and it's pretty easy. People follow the steps. Again, like deceptively difficult to design great onboarding. So I think pricing is like deceptively difficult. We had a principle around like aligning price to value. You know, people should pay based on the amount of value they get in the product. Uh, easy to say and incredibly hard to do. Value is subjective. The price is people's, you know, for some person, you know, they get like 10 units of value. Like, I think that's about $5. Someone else is like, I'd pay you $5,000 for those 10 units of value. You know, mm. so the biggest mistake was we could, a lot of mistakes compounded. And this is an area where I, do, I think we were risk averse. We ended up, we've ended up with too many pricing models. We've built on top of old, you know, compared mistakes. And it took a brave decision to say, we're going to start again. Well, this feels like it could be its own episode, just talking through your pricing <laughs> lessons and journey. Maybe is just, is there a nugget of wisdom you could share for someone that's trying to think about pricing right now based on your, your experience? The number one thing I would I, I would say is keep it simple. Hmm. Keep it simple. It's so it's so tempting to like like with us for example, like a lot of SaaS products, you know, have add-ons where you're like, hey, you know, we 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 built X and that's like ten bucks or hundred thousand, depending on what kind of product you're selling. We built X and that's the price of X. Hey, we've just built Y. Y is awesome and it's a new thing you can do and it unlocks all these new capabilities. People shouldn't get that for free because it's a new thing they didn't have. So let's charge like more for why. Uh, what, but that doesn't really work with the other. Okay, let's make it an add-on. Oh yeah, cool. People just add on. But then like later, now you've got like people who have the add-on and people who don't. And then you're like, and you add another thing. And so like tiering, we've like added tiers. We've like, you know, cut diff with products, tiers, add-ons, tiering in the add-on. Like, oh my God. You know, People can't understand their bill. So my advice is keep it simple. Reject, like fight so hard to not, to like resist the temptation to add extra ways in which you price. Amazing. Uh, I didn't think about going into this topic, but I'm glad that we touched on it. <laughs> okay, I think I was talking about scars for life earlier. That's another scar for life. <laughs> no, All right. Let's keep talking about some frameworks. Another that I found that I loved is something that you call differentiation versus table stakes. What's that about? It's kind of like the Kano model, if you're familiar with that, but mm -hmm. it's very simple. It's kind of like, I guess we took the Kano model and just tried to make a really crazy simple version of it. Again, like I, I'm a little bit allergic to things like this. I kind of even hate myself for bringing up the Kano model. I'm allergic to like people over-intellectualizing frameworks and like, you know, oh, well, have you seen the new different law of whatever? I'm like, keep things simple, practical, and pragmatic. And then let's all, go, again, go back to work and start building the product so that customers can benefit because that's actually all that matters. 
Um, and so, so difference versus table stakes, very simple. I think people who uh, adopt a product or buy a product or switch to a product, there's kind of two driving forces. One is the attraction of the new solution. And that's, you know, that's basically differentiation. What, so what's different and better? But critically, what's different and better in ways that customers care about? Again, back to all the failed projects, my lesson from a lot of these was we were different and better in these Google projects in ways people didn't care about. You know, like um, all sorts of Google projects, like Google Wave was an amazingly innovative product that no one really cared about. So be, be different and better in ways people care about. So that's the attraction. That's like, oh, I want to check out that. That looks cool. I want to check that out. That looks better than what I have today. But on the other side, there's like a kind of entry requirement or like table stakes. You know, to, to play the game, you got to have a certain amount of things. And so they're table stake features. They're often very boring. You know, they're like real basic stuff, boring stuff, and easy to ignore and easy to not build. And again, a mistake with Intercom maybe over the years is that we were much more attracted to the differentiation and built a lot of that. So we went through different iterations of our roadmap, sometimes like changing over the course of a, of a, of a year or two, where we were like all oh, the differentiation to realize that everyone loved it and really wanted to buy, but they couldn't because we didn't have the basic report that they needed or we didn't have the basic permission feature that they needed. And then the roadmap was built based on those, but like trading off whether we need more differentiation or trading off whether we need to invest more table stakes. And so these days, the pace of income today is like we're kind of 50-50 probably in terms of resources, but it has swung 70-30 in both directions at times. The last piece about it is, I think it's really powerful to like look at a roadmap or look at a proposed roadmap and ask yourself, which of these two things matters more to us, not to us actually, to our customers right now. The other thing that, that we've talked a lot about here internally is if you're a startup and you're entering some kind of, any kind of established category, customer support for us, big established category, massive, a lot of table stakes built up over years, decades, you know, ServiceNow, Service Cloud, Salesforce, Zendesk, like decades of table stake feature building. So to play the game, you need a lot of the table stakes unless you have incredible differentiation. So from the early years of Intercom, people just buy us alongside Service Cloud or Zendesk. They just buy us alongside. They're like, this Intercom thing, we were like messenger first, modern messaging, and modern UX. They were like, we want that for our customers alongside the big giant bag of table stakes because Intercom doesn't have any of those. And then over the years, we've built the table stakes to a point where okay, now we can fully play the game and we can like, people can switch so they can swap Zendesk for Intercom. But it took us years to get there, you know? And, and then hence, kind of, if you're a startup, you need to invest a lot more in differentiation. And then over the years, I think you start to balance the books a bit. I think what's interesting about this is one, it just gives you a way to think about looking at your roadmap. How much are we actually doing? And are we doing too much table stakes? Are we doing too much differentiation? So it gives you kind of an awareness of what's happening. And I think there's also interesting, it's an interesting strategy as a startup. Like, do we spend years doing table stakes and then launch? Or does it go the way Intercom went, like differentiate first, we'll build everything else later. Wonder when it makes sense to go one or the other. Yeah, and it probably depends on the market, uh, different, cate- different categories yeah. and all sorts of things. Yeah. Yeah. Awesome. Okay. The next framework is uh, something that you call swinging the pendulum. What is that about? <laughs> Uh, I actually kind of mentioned that an example of it earlier. Mm. Um, like the differ- you know, differentiation and table stakes was swinging the pendulum. So 
Swinging the pendulum means you take a step back from uh, everyday work life and you kind of make the observation that something's in an undesirable state. So like, you know, maybe it's, we, whoa, we've all the differentiation in the world, but people can't adopt the product because we've never built any of these table stakes. That's like undesirable. Or, oh, we've now built all these table stakes and we've not been investing in differentiation. And actually, we're not that attractive to people because switching product is like a pain and we're not just not a- attractive to people. We need to like, okay, so this undesirable state. And then, so you go and fix it. Uh, but the temptation is that you overcorrect. And we've done this so many times in so many domains, everything from, okay, we don't have enough differentiation. A year later, oh, wait a minute. We like, we're missing all the table stakes. Okay, we're over there, you know. So product building is one. People is another one. Building out teams and people. Like another big one was uh, maybe, I don't know, maybe five years into Intercom, we were, you know, we're on this kind of like high, high growth trajectory, really kind of good classic startup uh, before our pricing problems. And um, mm-hmm. we kind of like, we looked around and said, none of us have done this before. I don't think that's good. Undesirable state. Do we even know what we're doing? Like, we're just a bunch of random people. Do you know what we're doing? We, be, we need to hire some experts. We need to hire some experts. Like, you know, if we're going to go up market, we need up market people who've done it before. So, you know, that was like undesirable state. Fix it by hiring people who've done it before. And then we hired loads of people who've done it before. And what they did was brought the culture and ways of working of their prior company to Intercom. And so we totally overcorrected. Didn't work out for, for in a lot of cases. In most cases, didn't work out because we weren't, we weren't trying to be a bigger company that already exists. We were trying to be us, you know? So um, the, like hiring, hiring and building teams was another where we really overcorrected to find out like, okay, it's a balance here. Related to that one, related to hiring one is like generalists and specialists, kind of similar theme. People who've done it before or people who are specialized. And we've, we hired a bunch of specialists, specialists only to realize that they're not adaptable. And in Intercom, you know, we, are, we believe in kind of, we have a lot of ambiguity and we lean into the ambiguity. And people who are highly specialized can thrive in big companies, really thrive. They're invaluable employees. But in a fluid, startup-y culture with a lot of ambiguity, they can really drown, really struggle. Maybe the middle of this pendulum kind of landing in the middle is, Let's hire someone who has done a bit of it uh, and have a bit of specialism, not much, but enough to try and figure it out, you know? So we hire a lot of those kind of people today. First of all, I love all these stories of things that didn't work out because a lot of people don't like sharing these. And this is what people want to hear is like, here's not everything was perfect. Here's a lot of mistakes that were made along the way. And it feels like this framework is a result of just doing this too many times. Is the main lesson here generally avoid swinging the pendulum too far because sometimes it's worth it like in this case of ai is like no we're going all in or in mobile it was worth going all in is there kind of a i guess yeah what do you what do you think of when i when i say that in talking to people about this before sometimes the conclusion of the conversation is something like you it's the only way to do it like you actually can't do it a different way and and so maybe the question is really like how extreme how high up how high does the pendulum go versus like you, you got to swing it. And then it's like, how far do you swing it? And for sure, you're right. With AI, we are like, we're actually, we're, we're swinging it pretty high. Maybe I over, overestimated earlier, like 
you know, if AI is like in the differentiation camp to kind of mix the frameworks, we, we're still building a lot of table stakes features too, like building depth into the product. And that's 50-50. You know, I think I mentioned 50-50 earlier. So that's 50-50. So we're not, we're not totally swinging it. We're not like, you know, it's, it's swung, but uh, we're also kind of doing the other thing and balancing things out. So I, I think you probably have to swing it. Uh, it reminds you to know where the boundary is, is what I was going to mm-hmm. say. It reminds you of a story, you know, uh, like back to the olden days stories. I remember when I went, I remember at Google, privacy was like really top of mind to the point that it would like block decisions, like block product progress, just privacy, circular conversations, so many circular conversations, and nothing ever got built or shipped. I worked on a project for a year at Google, and we shipped nothing in the year, just circular conversations, uh, which killed me at the time. So when I went to Facebook, I realized they have a different approach to privacy. And again, I'm not advocating it's necessarily good. It certainly didn't help their brand. But the, there was, there was um, kind of an idea that to know where the boundary is, you've got to cross it. And crossing, it's painful. But if you don't cross it, you'll never know. So if you, go, if you think you're going up to the boundary and you stop before it, it turns out it's actually miles over there. You know? So I think with a lot of this stuff, you, you, know, you don't really have a choice. You've got to kind of cross the boundary feel the pain, be humble enough to realize you didn't get it right and, you know, kind of go again or whatever the right course, act, corrective course is. Yeah, get that pendulum off the, off the even like pivot thing that it's on and then, oh, and then let's fix that pendulum. Let's put it back. Yeah. yeah. Okay. Another framework that I read about briefly and I love the general idea of it already, which is something that I think you call product market story fit. Yeah. What is that? So, you know, with product market fit, pretty basic, well understood, very important. You know, the way I describe product market fit is you've got to build the right product for the right market. I think, by the way, as an aside, a lot of not enough people think about the market side of that equation. A lot of product people don't think about the market side. But for me, it's very simple. Like the market is the people, the problems they have, and how important the problems are to them. To have a good market, you need a lot of people with the same problem. And they need to care a lot about it. Going back to the Google social stuff, we found a lot of people with the same problem, but they didn't really care. They didn't really care. Like, you know, what they had was fine. Uh, so like a lot of people with the same problem and a lot of energy around the problem. And the product is the solution to that. You know, so why? If that's the, if the market's the who, the product's the what. And I just, I don't know, in my career again, so a bunch of products that were built, there were good products in good markets, and they failed, and I couldn't work it out. And eventually, I came back to this idea that, like, and maybe someone might say, uh, "Paul, it's marketing." <laughs> You're talking about marketing, but like story, the story's wrong or the story's missing. And so sometimes it would be a great product in a great market explained in a convoluted way, like that. I see that a lot. I, I used to see that a lot at Google again, just explained in a very complicated way, over intellectualized, and. And as a result, people are like, I, what? what are you talking about? You know, you don't get their attention. And so the story is really important, as important. And, and actually, sometimes you'll see, like, not great products, uh, certainly worse on paper. I'm trying to remember, like, the Spotify competitor back in the day, people were like, what was the name of it? Audio? Yeah, Audio. Mm-hmm. Audio was one of these like where, like, a lot. yeah, people, like, great. Like, um, people, all I've ever heard about Audio was amazing product. Mm-hmm. And uh, it failed. 
you know, and why did it fail? Spotify and audio had the same market. They were solving the same set of problems. Audio was arguably the better product at the time. I don't know if that's true, but arguably the better. I always think Spotify is an incredible product. So. But you know, the story, they, they got the story wrong. And so again, I think all product people, whether you're a designer, product manager, people in research, data science, need to think about the story all the time. Work of marketing, work of product marketing, and like learn about how to explain the product as much as how to build the product. Mm-hmm. Makes me think about positioning and how important that is. And we had uh, April Dunford on the podcast very recently oh, talking yeah. a lot about that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. She's excellent. She's yeah, it, it is really that like why are you better, you know, and can you explain why you're better? Uh, that's such an important point. A final area I wanted to touch on is jobs to be done. So we had the co-creator of jobs to be done on the podcast. We had uh, Sri Ram Krishnan on the podcast. They very much disagree about how effective jobs to be done is. I know you guys are big on jobs to be done. So what are your just general thoughts on the jobs to be done framework? How effective was it for you all? How do you use it? What do you find work, doesn't work, whatever comes up? Yeah, I'll be totally honest at the risk of offending people if they listen. Uh, like, like we worked with Bob West, uh, you know, who, who, who's um, age years ago, and Bob's a great guy. And we kind of followed that model of jobs to be done more than the ODI, I think is the other school of thought. Anyway. I'll try and say this in a simple way. We found jobs to be really good. Uh, you're very, very useful. But in a very simple way, again, back to this idea of like simple frameworks, in a simple way, kind of separately, there's like so many people who spend so much of their energy debating the nuances and, 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 and peculiarities of one version. Of, like, who cares? Who can, like, no one cares. Oh, well, I don't care. They care, obviously. I, I, I'm like, cust- your customers don't care. Like people you're trying to build a product for don't care. No one cares. That's like a cool intellectual debate. But like, it, uh, kind of for me, maybe this is too extreme. It doesn't, it doesn't really have any place in work, you know, like in the, in, in the work we do. We're just trying to build a great, great product. And so for us with Jobs We Done, it was a really good way of us centering on the customer problem, like focusing on like not getting distracted basing it in research, like good, solid research informed insight that told us like the thing people were trying to do, like what is the thing people are trying to do? Again, energy, do they have a lot of energy around it? Maybe the energy thing might've come from talking to Bob actually, now that I think about it. I think it did actually. I think like the idea of like this idea that, um, you know, you need people who have a lot of energy around the problem and you kind of have to interview them for that most of the time to feel the energy they have, you know, like, it's very easy to see if someone's apathetic versus like into it. So, so we found it pretty good. And, and we, we invented this job stories thing kind of by accident. I, I can't remember exactly what happened, but like I wrote out this way of writing a job story, basically. Well, we didn't call it job story. Someone else called it that. We just, at the time, we're like, there was this, I can't even remember, you know, there's like a trigger and an act. Anyway, um, we didn't even give it the thing a name. Someone else named it, I think. And, I'm just like, we're just trying to build a great product, you know? So like, we found it really good in that way, really simple. And then the other one that we use a lot still here is um, uh, the four forces, which is this like framework out of jobs we've done. Uh, the four forces being like um, different for people, there's different forces when people try and switch product. And some of it's the differentiation table stake stuff, like the attraction of the new solution, the reasons that you might not adopt it, habits, people have anxieties. Like, here's another kind of like funny story. 
to tell you how much the four forces is really good. Here's a, here's a funny story. I was saying earlier that like Owen and Daz were trying to convince me to leave Facebook, which I loved at the time, join and to come. They uh, wrote out the four forces for me to join. And then secretly over a few beers, talked to me and fed me my anxieties and like, you know, like uh, whatever, like, I'm like, you know, basically worked me on the four forces. And I was like, that is, that is genius. That is ingenious. Maybe it's a bit, you know, but it's ingenious. Uh, and so it's just the four forces is incredibly good at um, helping understand why people make decisions. I love that a lot of your advice just continues to come back to keep it simple, cut away anything that isn't necessary. And uh, I find the same exact thing with jobs to be done. I find it really useful as a framework for the podcast, the newsletter, but I think there's this like endless set of processes and ways of optimizing that gets people distracted and often just kind of slows everything down. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, and it's interesting and fun to talk about sometimes, like really fascinating, you know, but um, unless you're like an academic, but if you're Mm -hmm. working in a company that you're trying to build a software product for people, to improve their lives in some small, meaningful way, like it doesn't matter. You, you, you know, just use the thing that helps you do that. That's the goal. And, you, and use the thing that helps you do that. And that's it. With that, we've reached our very exciting lightning round. Are you ready? I'm ready, yeah. What are two or three books that you've recommended most to other people? Yeah, the two books I recommend to everyone always. I have copies in my office here. Uh, it's not how good you are, it's how good you want to be. It's a book by Paul Arden, who, who was, worked in advertising a long time ago. It's an excellent book. It kind of shows people that you feel unlimited potential, if you think about it the right way. Everyone does. Um, the second book I recommend to everyone and buy for people and give to them is Principles by Ray Dalio. I'm a big fan of Ray Dalio. I think he's incredible. I, I'm a big pr- believer in principles. A lot of us at Intercom are. I always get those two books. And they're totally different. The, the Paul Arden book, is you can read it in 20 minutes. Principles is like that thick. <laughs> What is a favorite recent movie or TV show that you've really enjoyed? Most recent is The Bear, which I came to late. Um, the reason I actually lo- I love the show is because I think it somewhat celebrates the grind. And I think that's important. I worked in coffee shops a lot, a lot when I was younger, when I put myself through college and stuff. And like the grind is part of life. And part, it's nece- the grind is a necessity to get things done and get, make great things happen sometimes. And I liked that about it. I really liked that about it. What is a favorite interview question you like to ask candidates? Yeah, I'll give, I'll give you a slightly different answer. I don't really have said in a few questions for candidates. And I don't like, I don't like, I'll answer questions universally. I don't like questions that rely on memory. You know, a lot of like, tell me about the last time you did X. You know, here's a, an amazing question I got given recently um, by Alyssa, who used to work here. I had to do referral calls. So like you're interviewing someone, you want to give them the job and they've got referees. And of course the referees they have are like the best people that they've ever worked with and their favorite managers. So this question is, what feedback will I be giving this person in their first performance review? And it's an amazing question because the person can't dodge it. You know, there's an answer and um, it's incredibly enlightening. And that's a question you ask on reference calls? Yeah, on reference calls. That is such a good question. I love it. It's a great, amazing amazing question. Yeah. All right. What a gem. Thank you for sharing that. What is a favorite product you recently discovered that you really love? I know this is kind of like maybe cheating, but I go back to a lot of the AI products. I think think ChatGPT Vision is mind-blowing. I've been playing with Rewind lately. I was a bit late to it. Des and Kieran, a bunch of people here coming up, founders of Intercom, love Rewind, use it and love things. It's amazing. So I'm a bit late to that, but um, it's just like, 
augmented memory. It's kind of like kind of mind blowing. So rewinds me fun. And they just came out with a little audio thing that can record your actual day. And you yeah, I'm not so sure about day. that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, got some got some flack. Yeah, but, I'm not so uh, sure about that. that. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know if it's real. It, it kind of looked like not a real product when they launched it, but I think it's real. Well, and it tippy toes into the um, what's okay and not okay, and with yeah. AI, and you know, yeah, yeah. It's cool, it's cool theory though, for sure. What is a favorite life motto that you often come back to, share with people, find helpful for yourself? Yeah, I have a post-it on my monitor um, that says, only work on what matters most. It's, all my, it's on my monitor. It's posted. And if something falls off, I have to write it again. Um, only work on what matters most. And like, it's amazing. I, I, I go into work, someone emails me, and I'm like, oh, God, you know. And I'm like, only work on what matters most. The, the second one is, and they're related, is, Stop worrying about things you can't control. And so I have, to, I have two of those. And so uh, only work what matters most. Stop worrying about things you can't control. It just like reduces the temperature. Again, like le- life lessons learned. I sent a lot of dumb emails in my past, you know, like red energy. Oh my God, what are they thinking? You know, like you wake up in Dublin to a San Francisco email. You're like, oh God, you know, keyboard. And um, if your monitor says these two things, you just don't do that. You just take take a breath, get a coffee, come back. Does it really matter? You know. Beautiful. That second one, I think I learned first from um, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. Have you read that? Uh, yeah. Of just think about the focus, the circle that you have things you can control, and then there's like the circle of things you can influence, and then there's the things you have no control over. And I find that really helpful myself. Yeah. I love that you have it as a post-its. I feel like I need to make post-its of all these lessons people share as their little mottos. Yeah, the post-it on the monitor is a real life hack I found a few years ago. It's like it's mm-hmm. kind of dumb in a way. Like the post's on the monitor. It's in the way, you know? Um, <laughs> Wait, you, you actually just... put it on the monitor in the way of your screen? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Oh, wow. It's in the bottom the, the bottom left, like just bottom. covering the bottom. You know, it's like, because yeah. otherwise, if it wasn't there, I wouldn't look at it. That's I make myself look at it. Yeah. Wow, I haven't heard. I haven't heard of people putting it over precious real estate on their monitor. Yeah, that works. What's the most valuable lesson your mom or your dad taught you? Uh, like the biggest one, again, so reductive and simple, is to be nice to people. I, I think um, being nice goes way further than people really realize. Uh, one thing that I've learned, again, the hard way through life, is you you have no idea what's going on in people's lives. You've no idea. People could have all sorts of like really stressful, all sorts of personal stuff going on. And the reason they did the thing at work that you didn't like is because of that. And so like, I try and think like, be nice. You don't know what's going on. Like you might learn later. Don't, you know, don't like, don't act in a way you would regret. Uh, I think being nice in life goes far further than most people give a credit for it because it's kind of too much of a I don't know fluffy truism or whatever I 1000% resonate with that I've been told I'm too nice and I had to become a little less nice but I still can't lose that Um, so I fully buy into that my parents taught me a similar lesson yeah and sometimes it's hard like um, I'd never fired anyone before I joined Intercom for example I didn't read I really did not like doing it and then, and since then, I've done it quite a few times in a bunch of different circumstances and realized it always works out for both sides. And, and the nicest thing to do 
is to do the harder thing. You, you know, it's actually the nicer thing to do. Pe people are like relieved in this example. It's, it's a better, it's a nicer thing to do. So it's, it's a, it can be a complicated one. I love it. Final question. You're Irish. You're based in Ireland. What is a in Irish food you think people should definitely try out if they ever uh, visit Ireland? Yeah. Can I cheat and say Guinness? Is that food? <laughs> Absolutely. Uh, the Guinness in Ireland, I, people talk about this uh, and like it's true. The Guinness in Ireland is much, much better for a whole bunch of reasons. Uh, it's, it's basically a fresh product and it's brewed here. It's kind of like you know, the way I think about it is like, it's like milk. Milk goes off, Guinness goes off. You know, Guinness is less than a few days, older than a few days old, tends to start deteriorating. So, um, so Guinness in Ireland is amazing because it's made here. And the other thing I think is that Ireland does really well is fish. Ireland has not had, by the way, the greatest reputation for culinary excellence over the years. Um, I think Irish food in the States in particular is not good. But uh, the fish here is incredible. You can get incredible fish. And Ireland is obviously an island, so there's a lot of fish. On the Guinness front, is there any way to get the good stuff not in Ireland? Or is that just, you got to go? No, there is actually. Um, you just need to be near a brewery. You need to be like, an, so Guinness is brewed in Nigeria. Uh, there's what? a huge Guinness market in Nigeria. Not know that. I think they actually use a different recipe, but mm. it's brewed there. Um, I think the brewery in the U.S. is uh, somewhere on the East Coast between New York and Eastern Canada. So it's somewhere there. So often the Guinness in New York can be actually pretty good. Uh, the Guinness in San Francisco tends to be really bad. I remember talking to someone about this that works in Guinness. One of my friends does a lot of work in Guinness. I think the boat carrying the Guinness goes down through the Panama Canal back up to San Francisco. So you're, you're like, it's 12 weeks old or something. Mm, wow. Did not think we would be learning about the travel uh, path of Guinness from... At least this is what I've heard. The Guinness has so many myths. You just don't really know what's true, but these are the stories I've been told. Amazing. Paul, you are awesome. Thank you so much for being here. Two final questions. Where can folks find you online if they want to reach out? And how can listeners be useful to you? I have a handle I use everywhere, basically P-A-D-D-A-Y. It's like Paddy with an extra A. So P-A-D-D-A-Y. That's everywhere. So Paddy at Gmail, at Paddy. It's, it's, it's my kind of handle everywhere. So that's where you can find me. Um, I'd love, yeah, I'd love people to reach out to me, like genuinely learn. I'd love to hear from people who think my AI talk is, a, is nonsense. And, you know, it's, it's more like a crypto web three or, you know, I'd, lo I'd love to hear people who have alternative opinions um, and challenge mine. That's how... I, I kind of like to learn and get better. So if people have those opinions, I'd love to hear them. I'd love to talk to them. Be careful what you wish for. The YouTube comments are always a spicy place. We'll see. <laughs> yeah. We'll see what we see. Awesome, Paul. Thank you again so much for being here. Yeah, thanks, Danny. I really appreciate it. Bye, everyone. Thank you so much for listening. If you found this valuable, you can subscribe to the show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. Also, please consider giving us a rating or leaving a review as that really helps other listeners find the podcast. You can find all past episodes or learn more about the show at lennyspodcast.com. See you in the next episode.